Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by SWCA. Since our founding in Flagstaff in 1981, SWCA Environmental Consultants has helped public and private clients overcome environmental challenges and move their projects forward. As we celebrate our 40th year in business, our 100% employee-owned firm offers comprehensive environmental planning, regulatory compliance, and natural and cultural resources management services. We are the problem solvers, the scientists, the planners, the technical specialists, and the creative thinkers. Thank you, SWCA, for your support of Big Adventures. Brian Durker, Big Adventures with Brian Durker, and today we've got Erica Ferriel, and uh, I'll tell you what, she's been doing this uh, river running for a long time, but she's been doing a lot of other stuff, and we're going to get right to it. Erica, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, I'm Brian. thrilled, though. I'm thrilled. Uh, Eric, and, uh, Eric and I just came off of a river trip, a windy road trip uh, through Grand Canyon, and had a great trip. Uh, but the wind <laughs> was really a challenge, wasn't it? Oh, man. Unbelievable. Oh, my God. My hands are still recovering. My whole body is still recovering. <laughs> but um, a really great trip. You know, those Aprils are kind of notorious for having a lot of wind, aren't they? They are. Um, you know, the, I always, Erica, just uh, door running with you first and foremost. Uh, but you knocked it out of the ballpark. Uh, Erica was the trip leader on this one and it was just like one of the best trips i've ever seen led and i congratulate you on that oh thanks it's not always easy no but it was (laughs) we had an awesome crew of course and an really just awesome group of people yeah they were a nice bunch they were they Uh, were pretty easy going but i also am super big fan of a bunch of the stuff that you do but i always like to start out with the first days of erica (laughs) <laughs> and so uh, give us a little shakedown on uh, your early years. Early years. Okay. From from, from the beginning. <laughs> from the fetal form. Okay. Well, I was um, <laughs> born in Riverside, California, and then we moved to Prescott, Arizona as a family when I was 12. And what brought the family to Prescott? Just, I think the same reason that everybody leaves California um One of the main reasons was the smog was so bad. My brother had really bad asthma. So they were just looking for a small town. That was a good place to live and raise the kids. And so we ended up in Prescott. And so what year was that? I think we moved in 89. Uh Uh-huh. Prescott's a nice town. It's kind of a, especially back when I grew up, it's kind of like a little sister city. Totally. A Flagstaff. I think it's bigger now because of the Tri-Cities over there. Oh, no. They mean, yeah, it's, shopping malls. It's huge. It's, it's huge. <laughs> but uh, really a neat little old western town setting in, in the original uh, footprint of Prescott. It's a really neat, neat town. Yeah. World's oldest rodeo. The world's, I mean, and... <laughs> If you're a cowboy, that means something. For sure. Uh, or if you're a cowboy fan, or if you're a cowboy hat. <laughs> Huge. But uh, so, did you go to high school at Prescott High School? Uh-huh. 
Go well, Badgers. The Badgers, I mean, we they were our arch rival. Flagstaff High, Prescott High. Yep. Big stuff. That was big stuff. <laughs> but uh, also, I think uh, the similarity is the old downtown, kind of nice old downtown footprint in both these towns. And, For sure. So I, I really like Prescott. No, Prescott's cool. Yeah, Christmas time, it's super beautiful. The whole yeah. courthouse is lit up. And Yeah. Yeah, and just a little bit more moderate weather than Flagstaff, which doesn't get quite as much snow, and, you know, it's a, it's a neat place. Especially these days. So, uh, were you a good student in high school? Yeah, I liked high school. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, into a little bit of everything, some sports, some, you know, theater and arts, and uh-huh. loved science and stuff, too. Yeah. And then, yeah, ended up going to U of A for my freshman year. Uh-huh. And that, then it's a great school too. Tucson's a, a neat town. To, yeah, got definitely connections in Tucson. Um, and did you go clear through uh, Tucson? No, I actually only spent one year at the U of A before I transferred up here. Oh, and then went to NAU. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So my first job was, um, you know, already I had a sense of caring for the environment. My first job was uh, I canvassed for the Arizona League of Conservation Voters. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, we went door to door. You were on the streets. Oh, totally. Knocking on doors, getting signatures, you know, signing people up. and um, Fight, when, Fighting for the land. Totally. And then uh, when we would come up to Flagstaff to get people, you know, here in District 2, just everybody was so cool. I was just like, man, these people are... My people, yeah, eventually found my way to Flagstaff. Nice. Yeah. And so um, you come to Flagstaff. What were your first connections here? Mm, Not a whole lot. Um, You know, I enrolled at NAU. And honestly, yeah, I didn't really know anybody. Um, My first job here, maybe you remember, there used to be a Greenpeace office downtown over here. Yeah, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's where they sell the olive oil now. But um, my first job here was Greenpeace. And um, I was the liaison for the Time Magazine issue where we were trying to get Time Time Magazine to stop using chlorine to bleach their paper. Anyways. <laughs> you were into it immediately. Immediately. But um what is and, what's the status of Greenpeace now? You know that's a good question. I don't know. I know the office here closed only about a year after I worked and then um but yeah I'm not sure what Greenpeace is up to now a days. Uh-huh. And then along the way you really kind of got in to the art, or did you get into the river running, or what was the sequence there from NAU? Well, so the Greenpeace office closed, and then I got a job at Late for the Train, which then happened to be how I met Phyllis Hogan, <laughs> right? So she, Gal, yep. Yeah, so she her shop when her son was right next door to Late for the Train, and I was in school you know, I was taking a little bit of everything. I think I had some geology. I was into botany, but met Phyllis. You know, she, you know how you have like those certain people in life that just you may not know it at the time, but they're like this doorway. It's like a it's like a when you come to a crossroads in life, and it's like it just opens this whole road. Yeah, and that would be <laughs> that would be Phyllis. She's she's a she's a gem. Yeah, you know, she's a local and probably national gem. Yeah. 
She is. And she opened your doors and introduced your people. And Exactly. And the rest is history. You know, her daughters were both river guides. And so I eventually started working for Phyllis, which changed my interests in school. I started taking more botany. I did an intern with her. Yeah, and so everybody knows Phyllis uh, has all... Well, you explain her operation a little bit, why don't you? Well, she's an ethnobotanist, um, you know, which means the study of plants and how cultures and people use plants. Um, So she has a storefront with her son in downtown Flagstaff where she has sort of like an old-style apothecary that carries a lot of the traditional and native Yeah, plants. I love that. All the little shelves and all the little uh-huh. bottles and tinctures yep. and no, oils. No, it's super and, cool. Yeah, yeah and then she super cool. also supports a lot of the local native artists um, that are making jewelry and kachina dolls. But then she also has a whole other side um, that she's doing her nonprofit, which is the Arizona Ethnobotanical Research Association, mm. AERA. And it's sort of preserving the knowledge, you know, of these elders of these cultures before mm-hmm. it's gone. And then she maintains it in her herbarium and it's all about education. And so. And so um, is she, she's still doing pretty good over there, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. It's open and yep. open for biz. It's open for biz. And anyways, she was my doorway. So her two daughters were both river guides at the time. And then also in that building were all of these artists, successful artists that were also connected to the canyon. I mean, so it sort of all happened at the same time. I was just enamored with the whole scene, you know, with all of these people. And it was a hopping scene. I mean, some photographers, painters, jewelers, the whole nine yards. Yeah. That whole, uh, oh, I'd call it a nucleus of old downtown, really. I know. I I miss it. It was super cool. It's a lot different now. Yeah. Like everything like changes everything. and stuff. That's exactly. why that's why you're here. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna go on a little path backwards and then forwards. Okay. <laughs> It'll be you know good for all of us to think about some things. And so you are working for Phyllis. How long did you work for Phyllis? Um, a good solid four or five years, and then on and off again um, over a couple more years, and you know just doing different projects with her. You know, I would still wildcraft for her, collect certain plants that she was using um, medicinally. Oh, uh-huh. and is she still making her, uh, well, what is it that, that everybody used forever on their cuts and bruises? Oh, that's Denise. That's her daughter. Is, is Denise still making uh-huh. that stuff? That's What's the it Super called? Sav. Super Sav. The yeah. Super Sav company. Yep. Born right there in Grand Canyon because of... Our foot issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, our whole body issues. And for for you guys listening, you know it's a it's a hot environment. So we just wear sandals. And if you've been down there for a long time, your feet look like Barney Rubble's and Fred Flintstone's feet. I mean, they it's it's a tough place on your feet and hands. And if you're working down there, your back and neck and uh, the sun beats down on you, so your overall skin uh, takes a degrading everything for your body but uh yeah some businesses have been born around that uh whether it be building sandals or uh, you know what phyllis is doing and stuff it's a wonderful place but when you're down there all the time it gets a little tough on your body doesn't it it does but it's worth it every second of it to to watch your feet go rubble 
Bunny Rebel. Right. It's all the stories, all the memories. It's all worth it. It's all one big blur after a while, but <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, And so who did you go to work for first when you were getting into the boating scene? And was it on, in Grand Canyon or were you doing stuff on other rivers? No, Grand Canyon was my first actual real river trip. Uh-huh. And I did a work your way, a motorized trip with Arizona River Runners. Oh. And this was 1997. Oh. And um, I loved it. It was, I just loved being down there and being in the place. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a super high adventure person. I loved the outdoors, but I had no clue about how to run a boat or read water. Or, oh yeah, you know, like all those things. All those things. I knew how to work hard. But you by know, the but... by the end of that trip, you knew you were going to do that for a while. Not really, you honestly. Didn't? I like I didn't think that I could. I remember trying to lift one of those motors back there, and just I was like, <laughs> "There's no way I could do this." But um, it was something that I had to work at. You know, when I did yeah. finally decide that okay, maybe I could do this. I, you know, I worked at it for sure. Well, you're remarkable. I mean, this this trip that we just came off of, we were rolling against a stiff, constant wind, and it oh, always man. impresses me how 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 well you do keeping going downstream and 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 Bree and you know the the smaller type people. I mean, I'm a big guy, and it was a workout for me, and I've, I've always been impressed with your strength and uh, savvy and ability, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's a physical vocation, to say the least. For sure. And when the wind <laughs> blows like that, I mean, it's you almost just go into this frame of mind of like survival, right? Yeah. And, and then it, that's where you learn the technique. That yeah. It's going to get us little people <laughs> downstream. That's going to get you little bits of mileage as you go. Mm-hmm. Or you can get in the fetal position and just start crying and you blow upstream and it's bad. <laughs> bad you can't let up for a second (laughs) and so here you are you're still doing river trips but obviously you've uh balanced that with your main passion of art making art and you know for the listener here once again i wish you could see uh some of this and we'll put it up on the website but uh the stuff you're doing is real striking it's colorful and it's it's got great messages within your work and it's deep work that way and i'm a big fan of it i'm sitting here holding a few pieces what i'm looking at is this real dynamic uh impression of the landscape and uh and then uh can you tell us a little bit about like if you're sitting there getting ready to paint something uh how, what what's your process uh, you have, obviously, I, I'm looking at uh, our only one, which is a, I assume, Earth, mm-hmm. our only planet, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's obviously threatened. The footprint of the wilderness is threatened in this. Uh, I like the use of the colors and the the, the grays in the devastated uh, and threatened area, mm-hmm. and. Uh, can explain to us your motivation and and how you formulate some of these images, or can you explain it? I'll, to, I will try to articulate. Yes. So, for a big piece like that, our only one, you know, it was for a show which had a theme, where we were 
supposed to, through our art, portray um, any one of the myriad of issues that the Colorado Plateau is facing right now. And so that one I chose to express visually what um, the effects of uranium mining are doing to the land. And so, you know, I know by use of color, like you said, using all of this beautiful, you know, showing all the colorful, beautiful landscape go to basically, you know, grayscale. It can be really powerful. Art can just be a really powerful tool to convey certain messages. It's a really powerful tool, I think, for advocacy, you know, in such issues. But the actual process, I mean, sometimes, once in a while, I will use pictures, but most of the time, it truly does just come out of my head. I'll start with big blank sheets of paper, and I sort of close my eyes, and in my head, I have a visual in my head, and then I will just really roughly sketch out the lines, and I will do it over and over and over again until I see that it looks how I want it to look right. give the effects, you know, of, you know, three dimensions and depth and, you know, you can tweak cool perceptions that you can't do in photography, for example. But then, um, then I'll, then I'll start with my real piece of paper, pencil it in again, and then I just start painting. Go from there. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're excellent. Your depth of field in these things is fascinating to me because that's hard to really pr- smoothly capture it for an artist is the the feel of depth the depth of, of distance and what you're grabbing on your stuff is really cool thanks um now the the art is obviously one of a kind and do you have commissions uh, will people come up to you and have a certain storyline they want to grab or a certain image or a certain promotion of an idea do you do much of that i have uh-huh. I usually do one or two commissions a year. Um, that must be fun. It is fun. I mean, almost all of them have worked out really well. And the people that are commissioning me have given me quite a bit of freedom. You know, they're just like, we love your style. This is the idea we have. Whatever you come up with, I'm sure is going to be awesome. So, so far, for the most well, part, you, it's worked out. Yeah, that's cool. And then they usually also give me, you know, the rights to retain my own digital copy and then I'll eventually maybe make prints and cards of that commission painting and it's a way for me as an artist to continue you know making money and and the um the theme like I'm sitting here looking at several of your pieces and I just love the themes because they really when when you have your words of inspiration that you had for that piece, it really fits. It really uh, makes. Do you do you include this type of script with your work? For sure. Yeah, because like I think that would that would be really an important element with this stuff. Uh-huh. Absolutely, because the writing. I don't know. I see it as much a part of the art as the painting. So you know, sometimes I'll have a poem or just a story or even more of an invitation to do sort of a meditation, you know, for the observer. Um, No, it's definitely all connected. And so, you know, I'll do these big, beautiful landscapes, but, you know, what does it mean? And that's part of my inspiration, too, is all of these days and years we've spent on the river, you start seeing 
the patterns and cycles of right. the river in the nature in nature and it's just such an obvious to me an obvious metaphor um for mm-hmm. our own day-to-day experiences you know the rapids of our life or you know for example or the storm clouds of you know our life and so you can use so i'm using these paintings and these images sort of as a reflection of our own experience. Metaphorically and a reflection. Exactly. You know, we all have a certain uh, ticket we pulled to be on the planet, and everybody has a start to finish. And and I think you're really grabbing that emotion in, in regards to the earth is always morphing on its own, but then the addition of the human activity and stuff is getting crazy you know get the way the footprint is shrinking 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 as far as unspoiled earth but uh you really grab that nicely and uh you have the journey it's 24 paintings and uh talk to us a little bit about that like sequential work that you you've done several of of these kind of journeys on paper and stuff. Can you explain uh, how that goes? Okay. So, right. The journey is this project I'm in the midst of. I have 12 paintings completed, and then I want to do 12 more. And then what it is, I mean, Arizona is just such an amazing state. We have all of these different life zones that overlap, and then we've got the Grand Canyon um, on top of that. And it's all changing so quickly. So the idea behind this was to sort of capture some of these unique landscapes and, of course, the critters and the plants that live there before it all changes again too dramatically. So the journey is, it's a visual journey. It starts with this snowflake on the top of our San Francisco peaks, right, which our peaks are um, a sky island, meaning there's plants that live up there that only exist on our mountain, um, yeah, it's an island. An, an island, yeah, a sky island. So the snowflake starts there, and then it journeys down the north side watershed, finds its way to the little Colorado River drainage. Okay, cool. Goes, cool. It's super cool, right? And then finds its way to the confluence of Grand Canyon and goes all the way through Grand Canyon, out through the Grand Wash Cliffs and continues on down, 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 and um, ends up into the Sea of Cortez. And then, of course, this visual journey um, does not include, you know, dams and lakes and reservoirs and all of that. It's sort of the... And boundaries between And boundaries, Mexico exactly. And... and so it's sort of the idealistic state of our watershed. And then... Each of these paintings, of course, includes the plants and animals. And I think by the time I'm done with it, it's going to have about 200 plant and animal species that are unique in some way, whether it's to, you know, that specific life zone in Arizona or if they're endemic or endangered. And maybe some things that, you know, we just don't give that much attention that aren't as iconic as some other, you know, Arizona plants and animals. Um, That's another thing. Your work uh, uh, depicting like the botanicals or the, it's really great. Some of those cards that you have, uh, for instance, are just really great depictions of that species. It's really good work. I love that part of what you're doing. How will you share this journey or how will you distribute this work 
or will it have an installation someplace or what what where does that go that's that's a good question i'm not totally sure the um, smithsonian the smithsonian why not but no i do have some ideas i would love to install it somewhere and if it could travel sort of along the same course as the images itself exactly yeah. that would be sort of a cool idea i mean we have an idea of like having it start in winslow at one of the art galleries that's connected to the la posada yeah la posada would be a neat yeah. neat venue and i you know we have a little bit of a connection to james terrell who is managing or owns some of the galleries that are going up right there. So I just sort of have this. Oh, he just, does, huh? I'm putting it out there, this phantasmical idea of like, that would be a cool place to start it, is there. Well, and also, if the public can never get to that cinder cone, yeah. know, that would be <laughs> right? a pretty neat installation there. For sure. Like, are you kidding? I've, I got to see that. Place. Yeah, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time there while it's been in construction. And Nancy and all, mm -hmm. and, and Jim, mm -hmm. you know, when he was the watchman, uh, we had dinner with him many times up there. But yeah, uh, what a trip, huh? It, That's... Yeah, it's called uh, something stone. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, it's call? called, uh, it's like Star Stone is his nonprofit or something. But um, you're talking about the, the crater. Crater, what's it called? Oh, goodness, why am I? It's, um, I always called it Cinderhenge. Cinder, Cinderhenge. <laughs> but the crater. <laughs> well, what this is uh, for the listener that uh, James Terrell uh, created this astrological observation. There's something called celestial vaulting. And he's using that reality in many different ways in this. Uh, he, he bought a cinder cone, a real cylindrical one. And then installed a 400-meter tunnel that is geometrically aligned with the constellations and the movement thereof, like of the sun, the moon, and different parts of the year, the, the solstice and all that. So you can observe these events looking out of these tunnels and these circular rooms that have observation hole in the top of them. It's really kind of hard to explain, but it's a, it's a miraculous installation. I think it's one of the biggest earth art installations uh, still being built right now. It's an amazing thing. And so it's worth paying attention to Skystone. Skystone, that sounds... Close. I am such an I know, idiot I can't for remember that. either, and I should I should remember, but I can't. Um, but it's out in the uh, kind of northeast of Flagstaff, and it is a remarkable setting. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a like a moon landscape where the crater is, and it's the well, it's something to look into. Call it up on the uh, internet or something, and and take a look at some of the pictures of this installation. It's pretty cool. Now. There's a certain uh, amount of, in my mind, disparity going on with the loss of some of these projects. And you have included uh, one that I particularly like is the Escalade piece you did. <laughs> and it's uh, a project that uh, they wanted to put a gondola or a, a deal for uh, on the Navajo Indian Reservation. You've got this gondola that goes down to the confluence of the Colorado and the Little Colorado. 
And uh, it comes off of the Navajo reservation, and uh, they ultimately have voted it down from proceeding. But, you know, there's a, a thing I wanted to say about these things you're talking about is the the probably the most remarkable thing about a river trip in Grand Canyon is this unobstructed or unfouled skyline. And you feel like you're in Grand Canyon, that's the only place in the world, and the whole trip is that way. And so it just terrifies me to think that encroaching on that skyline and especially dropping man-made gondolas into the river, it terrifies me that people don't realize what a buzzkill that's going to be. I mean, people really need that isolation feeling that a clean skyline and nothing but wilderness and canyon, uh, that's why you're there in the first place. And so if you got, you listeners will jump on this and and fight any sort of projects like that, I'm sure. But you've got a great, real kind of dismal-looking gondola that it looks like it's gone to shambles. And uh, it's, that I really like that piece, uh, the Escalade development. Yeah, that's another example of just how art can be used for advocacy, right? It is. It's a super depressing scene instead of this beautiful confluence with plants and animals and all this beautiful clear water right everything is dried up and, and dead and, and it's like the ruins of the gondola right it's, <laughs> it's great. Like falling apart uh, this is the first time i've been able to see this <laughs> so um but uh little colorado seems to be quite a target for several projects they have that that uh, water storage project where they want to build these dams in this uh, little colorado canyon and uh, it's surprising to me that they haven't assessed that the Little Colorado carries more sediment almost than any other river in the world other than the Perea, which is upstream. Right. And like those uh, reservoirs wouldn't fill up with sediment pretty quick. Pretty quick. <clears throat> and so we're always fighting some encroachment or another, but you're really capturing that. I want you to do one on those uh, catchments that they're trying to build you know the, the two dams up the little I'll, colorado I'll commission you for that one. okay <laughs> no that could be a potentially powerful piece yeah well. no it really could any anything like that that can get people's attention and, and uh grab their eye is mm-hmm. really then you can lead into the real story which is exactly what you're doing mm-hmm. and it's i'm really inspired by your not only your art but the uh, um, the message in your art and the words you have to say along with them. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the present. You're working on several art projects and stuff. What else have you got? Have you got any travel? Have you got any mm. adventures planned in the near future, Erica? <laughs> Not too many big adventures. Um, got still a few more river trips this season. Yeah, um, now we've got another road trip down the line. Mm-hmm. So, so that that'll be great. Always every trip, always a big adventure. I don't know. There might be some talk of Costa Rica or Italy this next year, which would be more travel than I've done for a while. Yeah, I've been I've been hanging pretty close to town, pretty close to our area. Yeah, these last few years, especially with the whole COVID thing. Uh-huh. But um. No, I mean, right now I'm actually home for a little bit of time and I am intentionally blocking out time to make new art. I have a show coming up in December, um, which is separate from the whole journey project, but I'm doing 
something to just honor our our town Flagstaff. And um, oh, cool. I'm including a lot of just fun birds and stuff from our town and actually just coming home off of our trip to all the fires. I just started a piece yesterday titled um, Red Alert, and it's a picture of um, our classic iconic raven sort of cawing out into the wilderness and you can see sort of the burnt trees but yet in the, in the foreground there are you know some of our favorite wildflowers oh which... yeah so from <laughs> you know beautiful to charred to the call out on that now it's kind of a metaphor in its own right a fire mm-hmm. uh, as to what the human encroachment is on wild places isn't it yeah, absolutely. And that's happening here in Flagstaff as yeah. well. Yeah, Flagstaff's blowing up. Big time. In a big way, like a lot of Western cities. I mean, you can go to any Western city, and I'm sure it's happening back east as well, but there's always been a westward movement sort of thing and just tremendous amount of uh, physical growth with communities all around us. What are your feelings about what can be done in a protection sort of way? And where would you start uh, as far as, let's start with the parks. Uh, What can we do to get more people on board with how limited the land is becoming uh, with these encroachments, these big projects? I was just down in the valley and I was totally shocked about the growth of Phoenix and the surrounding communities and stuff oh my goodness and where i remember beautiful desert are now streets and brand new buildings and high schools and stores and and it's crazy it's crazy that's a big question is there any hope i mean (laughs) i think there is hope even though some days i'm speaking for myself being sort of a sensitive empathic person i mean some days feel a bit hopeless for sure Uh i mean i think that's a really big big huge question and it has to do with a whole sort of cultural change and a paradigm shift of sorts it's not something that any new programs or you know more environmental laws are going to change overnight i think there truly has to be a paradigm shift we're such a consumer culture right so people have it really it truly starts with each person, yeah. and, you know, individual choices and how they spend their money, where they spend their money, you know, what they're consuming every day, how they're getting around. I don't know. It's that's a big question. Yeah. It, and maybe too, you know, getting people on like the trips that we do, um, having people get out and experience the wilderness more and, you know, the importance of unplugging and seeing the stars, um, you know, then then it makes it a little more real Then maybe they feel like they have something to protect or to care for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I think uh, the more you can get out there and enjoy little bits and pieces of the wilderness uh, really helps that issue. I don't know what we can do about population, but that's yeah. definitely an element, whether Huge it's element. trans transplanted population or just babies. Yeah. Uh, that's going to happen and is continuing to happen all over the globe. No, it's mind-boggling, all of the ap- apartments going up here in town. It's just like, who's going to live there? I well, mean, and <laughs> can you say water? Yeah. Water. <laughs> I mean, that's what I don't understand is how all this growth, like down in the valley, the massive amount of growth, uh, where does the water come from once that aquifer that everything's sitting on down there? Mm-hmm. I mean. uh, and, it, you know, 
or look at Los Angeles, look at Las Vegas, look at the uh, drought result that we're getting from the Colorado Basin. That's going to be interesting. And everything, it's terrifying. I mean, it, it just it's interesting to me that it only now does it seem like it's in an emergency when you and I and every other river runner have been watching those lakes drop, you know, for, for years, years, and years, and years and years and years and years and years, right? I mean, Lake Powell was full once in 1983. <laughs> it's been dropping ever since. Oh, it is. <laughs> The thing is with that as well is they're doing desperate things. Like I guess they're going to start dumping water from Flaming Gorge to try and recover some elevation in Lake Powell so that their precious electricity can still work in the first place. So uh, that's a desperate thing that we haven't seen mm. up to now. Uh, I Jen and I went up on the Lake Powell this winter a couple of times, and it's just amazing how low Lake Powell is. Yeah. I mean, you can only put a boat in on one single little aisle. Everything's dropped down to a level where some of those houseboats that are in Lake Powell are going to be uh, there forever unless they get a huge helicopter and drag them out or whatever or do an amazing amount of blasting to get to the water but i i don't know what they'll do with that mass of wall weep wow and all that it's nuts and uh you know i've always or i've said this for years is that the water is yesterday's oil like i mean oil was the most valuable liquid on the planet for so long where people are realizing it's water it's not oil it's going to be expensive. It's going to be hard to get. And we're seeing it before our very eyes. So when you guys drink your glass of water, appreciate <laughs> it. And a lot of countries don't have water. It's true. I mean, or even clean water. Even just our neighboring people on the reservation, <laughs> a lot of them don't have running water or yeah. water has been contaminated by uranium or. Yeah, something else we've done, you know. Mm -hmm. Taking <laughs> all their water to slurry coal. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, goodness, that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> it, it, it certainly is. Um, do you have any messages about what each of us can possibly do to help? Any messages for the individual? We all, I... Well, like you say, we, we all play a certain part in this right we absolutely and do we all have hypocrisy in our lives because we drive on the roads we mm -hmm. use gas we drink we, the water that's there all, all of the above is consumption absolutely no it's hard i mean it's hard to truly get people to want to change and i think it does start with small simple choices every mm -hmm. day just going into your days intentionally being connected and feeling connected to the land and to your community is a big part of it. You know, if we're, um, we feel disconnected from all of that, then there's not necessarily the motivation to want to be a good person. This is a tough one, Bri. Yeah, it was really on the spot. <laughs> well, I think it was a really unfair question because, the, you know, but, you know, I mean, you're a very optimistic person. Yeah. And, uh, I, that's the neat thing. Most of my guests, when I throw them that loop question as to where we're at or is there hope or is there no hope and stuff, 
Most all of us are optimists uh, in in my uh, circles, and you're a very optimistic person. And uh, one other optimistic thing I think I realized during COVID is nobody was in the parks, nobody was outside enough. They were all sequestered into their homes to protect themselves from that nasty little virus. But just in the two years we were not getting out, or a year and a half, uh, it was kind of amazing how the earth tries to recover mm-hmm. from the impact or, or from the people being all over it. Like parks uh, kind of regrow grew and, you know, there's a lot of... There were dolphins swimming in the canals in Italy. Because <laughs> <laughs> the boats were chopping them up. Exactly. But I, I think there is a certain... Like, have you ever seen those pictures of Chernobyl the uh, or uh, what was the nuclear plant in Japan um, that tidal wave got to? And they had to abandon all this whole part of the city. And there's these pictures of how the earth kind of repairs and recovers itself. And that gives me optimism that there could be hope for places that are reclaimed by by earth for sure i mean i don't worry about the planet earth too much that will recover i mean i think it's our own attachment you know to this place that makes us so sad to think of like losing all of these amazing animal species and um you know just the beauty that our world provides well it's the atmosphere that i'm worried about personally mm -hmm. it's the atmosphere and it will change i mean you look at if you just look at the history of the universe, <laughs> you know, everything is going to change. Our star one day will, our sun will explode and earth will definitely <laughs> not be take here. Take a little hit. Yeah, take a little hit. But no, I mean, we want to have hope. We want to have purpose. And um, we want all of this beautiful myriad of nature to go on. And I don't know. I saw- Maybe, you know, when when crisis and stuff is happening, when things get really bad, I mean, do you observe that people do come together and work together, even like with the COVID thing, when COVID like first happened, everybody was really good about, you know, wearing their masks and staying inside and, um, you know, we're all in this together sort of mentality, you know, so when there is crisis and you see people come together, it does give you a little bit of hope. But how do you get, right, the big question then is, right, how do you get people to change Yeah. when, you know, we have our needs, we have everything we need, we're sort of living the dream, we're living the good life, like, why should we change? It's like it's not that big of a reality yet. It's not very easy to do. It's It's pretty remarkable, though, the way the human spirit works that way. I agree with you that they do come together. We did come together and get the right shots and the boosters and the, uh, you know, maybe there is herd immunity going on. Uh, it isn't over with, and I always remind my listeners to get that second booster. Mm-hmm, definitely. It's not over with. This thing can uh, get a new variant and rear its ugly head again. Oh, uh, for so sure. So let's all stay vigilant with that. But it is remarkable how quickly they honestly uh, got, you know, the scientists got together and came together with a, a emergency approach to battling this thing. So that's a good example of it. Well, thank you so much for being here. I uh, think we could talk quite a bit longer, but I what I really want everybody to do is, uh, what is your uh, 
How can they look at your stuff the easiest on the internet? What's your um you could go to my email, website, website which is my name ericaferio.com or which might be easier to remember um reframinglife.com goes to the same place. Oh cool. Uh-huh. Um and then also if you're in Flagstaff you can go to um West of the Moon Gallery. She's got some of my originals and prints. Winter Sun. Yep. It's got cards. The bookshop's got cards. Right. Um, if you're in Grand Canyon, you can hike down to Phantom Ranch. And I did the Phantom Ranch t-shirt design this year. Oh, did you? All so, right. But you got to get down there. It's the only place they have them, either by boat or by foot. <laughs> well, definitely uh, look this stuff up, you guys, because it is stunning. It's beautiful. And uh, heck, you may want to commission you f- to do a big uh, three by six foot piece or something. That Who knows? Would be Who awesome. knows? My crazy <laughs> listeners, you can never really know for sure their next move. <laughs> but thanks so much for being here. I'm looking forward to our adventure in the middle of the summer. Me too, Brian. And, uh, you know, Eric Ferio, Big Adventures with Brian Durker. Come back, see us again uh, as soon as you can. And, Do me a favor and take good care of yourselves. Stay right side up. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bugner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.